Good morning, church. How are we doing? Good? Good, good. I'm glad to be with you this morning. My name is Brandon. I'm the Teaching and Discipleship Associate here at ECC. And to start, I got a little story. So it was the first day of my freshman year at a new high school. I was in science class. I was feeling pretty good. You know, I, I got a new pair of clothes. I was feeling fresh. I was ready to meet some new people. And so students were walking into the classroom, and I, I, I didn't know any of the students, but they were walking with friends and kind of talking and enjoying themselves. So I'm like, all right, yeah, these look like good people. These look my people. You know, I'm feeling good about this. Sitting there, I, I got there early. I had my book ready. It was the right book. I had the cool mechanical pencil with the grippy thing. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, the grippy thing. So I was sitting there ready to go, and then my teacher walked in. Well, he didn't really walk in as much as he kind of stormed in. So he stormed into the classroom really quickly, and the momentum of his stride was kind of frightening. And in the momentum of his stride, he grabbed the door behind him. It was open to the hallway. So he grabbed the door behind him, and he walked in. And as he came in, he grabbed the door and shut it. And it shut like I had never heard before. I mean, the room shook. I'm not exaggerating. The room shook. And so obviously, all talking that was once going on ceased immediately. Like, we were all kind of afraid of, of this guy. And he walks in, and he, and he stands in front of us, and he says, if you buy into Macro Revolution, there's the door. And we're sitting there, we're like, I was so, I'd never been so relieved to not know what a word meant in my entire <laughs> life. I was like, I don't know what that means, and because I don't know what it means, I can't have an opinion on it, and so I feel pretty safe right about now. But then my teacher goes on to, on, on this tirade where, where he is just ripping evolutionary theory and evolutionists themselves really, really hard. And I was sitting there just thinking one thing the whole time. Why is it so important that God created the world? And I was a kid who grew up in the church, so I kind of felt a little bit bad for thinking that. But I, at the same time, I was like, this guy's really angry. And I'm not as angry as him, but I believe in God. Why is it so important? Why, why is God creating the universe such a crucial thing to have understood and then kind of be against something else? That was the question that I dealt with then, and that's the question that I want to deal with today in, in church. Um, so if you're new, welcome. I promise I won't yell or slam any doors. Um, but welcome, and we are in a new series that Pastor Chris introed last week um, by talking about creation and evolution and the arguments and how to approach them and how to serve Jesus in the midst of that. And this week, we're going to be looking into Genesis 1 and kind of discovering what Genesis 1 has to offer to this topic at large and then to us today in our walk with Jesus. So there are no shortage of opinions or facts or anything of when it comes to this topic of creation and evolution and the creation of the world. Um, I have been in church services where the pastor stands in front of the congregation and implores them that if they don't take Genesis 1 literally in a creationist perspective, that their salvation is in jeopardy. That is not what we are going to do here at all. That is absolutely not the perspective of this church or this series 
Rather, what we want to do is we want to magnify God. We want to magnify Jesus and make much of him and make sense of the text that we have so that we can approach this topic educated, inspired, and encouraged, right? This is not a topic that should scare people into or out of the church. This is something that should unify us. And that's what we want to look at today. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open them, whether on your phone or in old school paper form. Open them up to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you today, we, ha- we always have some here at the front and then in the back as well. If you don't have one at home, please take one home on us and enjoy it. Um, it's Genesis 1, chapter 1. The writer of Genesis wastes no time and no breath with the beginning of this book. Uh, It's beautiful. It's terse and brief. The creation story is magnificent in in its structure. It's poetic, really. The Hebrew is actually really poetic, so much so that, that translators and commentators for years have wondered, like, should we put this in a poetic structure? So if you flip your Bibles to Psalms, you'll see that the structure of the words is a lot different than the rest of the narrative. And they do that specifically to say, yes, this is different. This is a song. This is a prayer. This is something, this is language that's different than you see in the narrative of uh, other portions of Scripture. And commentators have said, maybe we should do that with Genesis 1 because it's just that poetic. In fact, it inspired uh, a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis, who was really famous for the Chronicles of Narnia stories. Who's read or heard of the Chronicles of Narnia? A lot of us. Great, great stories. Um, and at, at the beginning of this story, C.S. Lewis has his main god-like character, Aslan, create the world of Narnia. And he does so by singing a song. He sings this. Narnia, 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 awake, love, Think, speak, be walking trees, be talking beasts, be divine waters. It's beautiful. They're just short phrases, but they do something to us, right? It moves our spirit a little bit. And this is a picture, an image, and C.S. Lewis was inspired by the poetic structure, the Hebraic poetic structure of Genesis 1. So with all that being said, without any further ado, let's read the text. Verses 1 through 8. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night, and there was evening and morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So my main point today, the thesis of my sermon is is this. Genesis 1 is not a science textbook. It's the story of origins that points creation back to its creator. Now, I'm coming at this sermon with a little bit of trepidation because I know that this topic has a lot convoluted into it, but I I, I love that we are approaching it head on still. And as we approach Genesis 1, I think we have to be really specific with our language, and I think it's crucial that we start here. Now, if you have lived in America or 
in most of Europe for the past 150 years, which I'm guessing most of us have, um, you have, we've normally approached Genesis 1 with a lot of how questions. So we read the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And our questions are, okay, how long did it take God really to create the world? Was it actual literal seven days, or were those days kind of expanded? How much time was there in between the days? How long did it take the earth to kind of get its eventual form? Did it happen immediately, or did it happen over time? How long did it take humans to take their eventual form? Did it happen immediately, or did it happen over time? And none of these questions are wrong or bad in any way. In fact, they're crucial. We, we need to engage these questions and have really good answers to those questions. But I think we need to be careful asking these kinds of questions to Genesis 1. Because may I present to you, it's, it's not trying to answer those questions. It's not necessarily trying to answer the how questions of a 21st century scientific mind. However, I do believe it's saying something. I think it's saying something specific, and I think it's saying something specific for us today. See, I, I think it's really important that we start here and we, we kind of wrestle with this idea of Genesis 1 not being a science textbook because what it does in us is it, it reorients the questions in our, in our hearts and our minds. If, 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 there was, if there was so much considered in, this, in Genesis 1 to be a science textbook, then my, my main point wouldn't be what it was. It, it sounded more like this. Genesis 1 is the origin story that points creation back to itself. This sermon would be less of a sermon and more of a lecture, more of a, this is how the earth was created. But Genesis 1 doesn't have that approach to the creation of the world. It takes a different one. And today, by, by God's grace and by his mercy, what I want to do is showcase that Genesis 1 is all about God. It is actually about his sovereignty, his, his creative act in the world. It is about him more than it is about what happened. So with that in mind, let's pray. I just want to pray and ask God's blessing over this. Father, we come to you now and we ask that you would be present in our midst, that you would guide this sermon, that your word would go forth and that there would be no manipulation, there would be, there would be nothing that would come in the way of you speaking to our hearts and transforming us. God, I pray that you would have your way in this place and that you would use me. In Christ's holy name, amen. So now let's take a closer look at Genesis 1-1 to really discover if I'm right. Let's look together to see if, if what I said proposed to you that Genesis 1 is not a science textbook is true. So Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Great start. Really powerful, really concise start to an awesome story. When I was in college, I had a literature professor who said, you need to take as much time thinking about your first sentence or your first paragraph as you take in creating the rest of your narrative. And I, I, I didn't quite buy it. I, I was like, that seems like a lot of work. Just kind of get the ball rolling, get the story going, and then you'll kind of figure it out as you go. But then as I started reading novels that have really lasted the test of time, that have impacted humanity for a really long time, I noticed something that they don't, mix their words at the beginning. That the first words or the first sentence or the first paragraph grabs us. It introduces us to a problem or to a person that we need to find out more about. It, it, keep, it get, keeps our interests and pushes us forward into the story. 
And Genesis 1 is, is no exception to that. The first line of scripture contains the cosmos. So the, there's a lot happening in this, in, this one, in this one verse. And the Hebrew of this verse is really helpful, I think, in helping us understand how, what the purpose of Genesis 1 in its entirety is. And the word that I think is most helpful for us is the one that we translate as created. And that's the Hebrew word bara. Everyone say bara. This is a great verb. This verb is only ever used in all of the Old Testament with God as, a, as its subject. So what that means is that no one does this kind of creating. There are other words in Hebrew for creating, but this word is unique to God. In the beginning, God barad the heavens and the earth. Only he does this kind of creating. It's unique to him. In other words, God's methods of creation are unique to him. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write that down. They are unique to him. Then the term heavens and the earth, right? In the beginning, God brought. What did he brought? He brought the heavens and the earth. In Hebrew, this is an idiomatic phrase that, that is used outside of Old Testament literature and within Old Testament, in, in, within the Old Testament. And what it does is it, it creates an all-encompassing effect. So it's a term that's used to generalize a lot of things and put everything into one place. So in other words, in the beginning, God created everything. He created all things. And he did it in his way and in his perfect order. And only he could do it because only God brought. So what I'm saying here, the point is God is clearly the focal point in the first verse. A lot of us say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're like, okay, what is the earth? What, what is that? But it, the structure of the Hebrew here points our attention to God. It points our attention to the one true God, the one who's creating. And so in Genesis 1-1, already we are, we are struck with, with who God is and trying to figure out how he fits into this story. We know that he creates, and we know that he has created all things. But the evidence there, it doesn't end in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, look down at uh, verse 21, and we'll read verse 21 and verse 24 and 25. So verse 21, so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which, which with the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth, and it, jumping down to verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and the beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So in verse 21, 24, and 25, we see the word kind used seven times. Now, just a little, as a little side note, numbers in Old Testament are really important, um, and they all have meanings. And sub, seven is known as the number of completion or the number of perfection. And again, we see that the writer of Hebrews saying everything that was created was by this one God, all things. But that term kind is a really general term. It's general in English, and it's general in Hebrew. It's general in the sense that it, it encompasses a whole bunch of things, all of the livestock according to their kinds, all of the fishes according to their kinds. In other words, if the writer of Genesis wanted to be more specific about 
what kind of creatures were created and how they were created, he had more specific language to use, but he chose not to. He didn't use that language. He, ju- he chose a really general term that would collect everything that was to be created into one place. And then he pointed back to God, and God saw that it was good. And then, going even further than that, nothing except for man and woman received their proper names in Hebrew. So the fish don't receive their proper names. The birds don't receive their proper names. The beasts don't receive their proper names. They just use general terms to lump everything into one place. So the reason I say all of this is to say, if the writer of Genesis wanted to put forth an exact scientific account of the creation of the world, he could have used different terms, but he didn't. Which to me assumes that his purpose and his emphasis was on other than proving how the world came to be, but rather proving the worth of the one who created it. Proving the goodness of the creator over the creation. So let me propose this, that the purpose of Genesis 1 is to enable God's people both from antiquity to modern day to celebrate the boundless creative goodness of the creator. The point of Genesis 1 isn't to prove right over wrong. It's to prove that God is great and that he created things and he's the only one who could have created it in his way and in his fashion. Genesis 1 does not say why a spider is different from a snake, although they're both gross, nor does, it, nor does it comment on the genetic relationship there might have been between various creatures. At the same time, when the passage is received according to its purpose, it puts scientific progress in its home. Genesis does not, does not come against scientific progress. It says, God, this good God created a world with humans to interact with this world, to test this world, to probe this world, to question this world, and to learn about it, but not as an end of itself, to learn about it so that they might know the greatness and the boundless goodness of the one true God. Genesis is all about God. And so I think the question that we should ask, instead of asking how the world was created, how long it took. Instead, I think before we ask how the world was created, we should be asking who created it. Not how, but who. Not always how first, but who. So if this is the point of Genesis 1, that we should see God as creator, that still doesn't answer my freshman age question. Why is it so important that God created the world? Why would, why would the writer of Genesis put so much emphasis on that? Well, there's a, a, a great uh, Old Testament scholar by the name of John Walton, and he wrote this book called The Lost World of Genesis 1. Um, I, it's in your notes, I think, to, as a reference. Um, it's, a, it's a good book. It's really interesting. He makes a lot of interesting arguments. He has a different perspective on how to interpret Genesis 1. And I think one thing is really helpful for us today in connecting how the creation of the world is a part of our story and our walk with Christ. And his emphasis is that we view creation not only in material terms, but in functional terms. So let me, let me explain this with an example. This here is a chair. Isn't it great? Now for the sake of this example, let's pretend that I created chair. Where there once was nothing, there is now chair. 
Where there once was a void, Brandon spoke, and now there is chair. Now, you could be looking at this chair and think, wow, that's a great chair. How did he do it? How did he manipulate the wood to curve in such a way? And, and the, the, the spokes just stand so straight, and the cotton to look so nice. You could be asking that, which would be a fair question. But you could also be looking at it and think, my legs are kind of tired. I've been standing for a long time. And then your perspective on the chair changes, doesn't it? You're not as interested in why the chair is the way that it is or how it was created the way it was created. Rather, you're saying, this church, this chair has a purpose, and it is to give me rest. So this chair is helpful because it has a purpose, and the purpose is to rest my tired legs. That's the difference between seeing the creation of the world in functional and immaterial terms. So the reason I say all that is to say this, that when God spoke and created the world, he not only created material things in, in the trees, in the oceans, and and all living creatures, he created out of a unpurposed cosmos, a purpose for the world and a purpose for all things. His creative force in the world was not just to make trees or to make people. His creative force in the world was to create order and focus and purpose for the world. So what Walton is suggesting in his book in Genesis 1 does not is that Genesis 1 does not merely exist to give an account of the creation of the material world. Rather, it is an account of a non-functional cosmos suddenly being transformed. Walton goes on in his book to talk about how um, scientific progress can be supported by this idea, this perspective of the Genesis story. But I think what's really important for us is that without God's creative act, and now without Christ's creative work in salvation, Without, create, without God's creative action in the world, not only would we not have oceans, mountains, and snow, but we also wouldn't have the purpose that comes with a life of following Jesus. In other words, God's creative action isn't done. It's, it's, it's not completely finished yet. When God spoke into the void of unpurposed materials, he made them new by giving them purpose. And God has spoken into me, into the void of my own life, and from that void, he has created a drive to serve him, a drive to, to act in his world that would give him glory, that would support his people, that would spread his goodness in the world. He has given me purpose. He is wanting to create in us a new life by his son, Jesus. So I'll end with this. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, we see a new take on the creation story. And this time, Jesus is the focus. He is the focal point. In John chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 5, it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, God's preferred material for creation is still language. It's still words. 
But now his word has been made flesh and has dwelt among us and has brought light into the world. And God's creative action is not finished. It was not finished when he rested on the seventh day. God's creative purposes in the world were set into motion on that day. And they came to a climax in the time of Jesus when Jesus spoke into our worlds and said, if you want freedom, if you want purpose, if you want vision for your life, get to know me and I will create in you new life. I will continue to create in you anew. Therefore, May the creation narrative in Genesis 1 fascinate our attention on the one true God who has created all things. Let that be our orient. Let, let, that, let that be the thing that guides us. That we look at Genesis not for the answers of how the trees were created, but who God is, who created those things. Then may we turn our attention to Jesus, the word made flesh, whom all things were made through, and allow him to speak into the void of our lives and begin creating beautiful things. As we fix our attention on God, on the God of all creation, and on his son, who is the salvation of all creation, may we be made new by his unique and creative action in our lives. So my original point was this. Genesis 1 is not a science textbook. It's the story of origins that points creation back to its creator. So my hope and my prayer for this sermon is that we would turn our eyes back to our creator and be made new. Pray with me. Father, I pray that, that your word would remain true, that it would transform our hearts, that we would be more fascinated with you and your son Jesus and the work that you are doing in the world right now the creative process that you are doing right now in our own lives and in, in our families' lives and in, in the world around us. And that, God, we would be made new. We would attach ourselves to the creative activity of your purposes and that we would find purpose and meaning in you. God, I pray that your purpose and your meaning would be, would be done through this church. And, I, and God, I pray that right now, whatever action you are doing in the lives of the people in this room that you would continue to its completion for that is what you do so god we bless you and we praise you and we worship you in christ's holy name amen